0: Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Father, we pray this morning that as we open the scriptures, so too our souls, our minds' eye would be opened to behold more of the wonder of the holy name of Jesus Christ. When we consider the name of Jesus, we are considering that which he has accomplished, the sum of his being, all that he is worthy of by way of praise and adoration, his great renown, his fame, the accomplishments of his work, that which was ordained before time began, fulfilled in the fullness of time, and coming true by way of God's perfect will, even unto the salvation of saints yet today. As many as the Lord our God has chosen will come in by the drawing power of the Holy Spirit, and through the proclamation of the gospel to join those who praise him even this day, even in this place, lifting up the name that is worthy of praise. Father, as the scriptures are proclaiming our hearing today, I pray that the knowledge of Jesus Christ would increase, that the love for our Lord and Savior, our healer and our deliverer would greatly increase, that our confidence in boldly proclaiming the power of the gospel to save the only ultimate hope for all of mankind would only increase. We pray, Lord, that you would perfect and that you would convict, that you would sanctify and establish your church, even as Peter prayed and as he declared the power of God's ordained will for his called-out ones, that he may, through these means, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. We pray before your word as its standard and authority proclaim proclaimed today, that you would move us to adopt those attitudes that he also endorses, humility, watchfulness, sober-minded and firm. We pray all of this to the praise of Jesus Christ and also in hopes that the lost, upon hearing the truth whereby they may be saved, would repent and believe. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. May he be glorified and exalted As he has been in this song service, so too in the preaching. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, by the grace of God, gathering us today, his saints, to worship and glorify his holy name, we turn our attention to his scriptures in Psalm 116. So as you're able, would you turn there with me today? Psalm 116. Our Psalm a Month series leads us to this, the fourth, in the set of Hallel Psalms. The aim of this morning's message is to exhort the hearer unto obedience, considering the grace of God. To move us as we listen to God's word to obedience and to praise, considering the grace of God. This is certainly the result of the works of the Lord upon the author of Psalm 116. Sounds like David in many ways, though we don't know who exactly it is. Suffice it to say the Holy Spirit himself is the ultimate author, and these biblical themes that stretch across the pages of scripture are evident. The grace of God is worthy inspiration for our obedience and our worship of his great name. The title of this morning's message, I had a few in the running. The one I eventually went with is the 10th leper's song. The 10th leper's song. You guys remember Luke 17, 11 through 19. If you don't, we'll read those verses To close our introduction in a few moments. But there is a leper who is saved from the malady, from the affliction of his disease. Jesus heals him. But he's just one of ten. Jesus healed nine other guys. What's something unique about this man, though, is he returned to worship the Lord who had delivered him. What song would be a great one for him to praise the Lord with? Psalm 116, for sure, would be an incredible tenth leper's song. Psalm 116 could also be entitled, May I Submit Grace and Vows. Perhaps this is a little bit more direct title, Grace and Vows. The grace of the Lord and the vows, the commitments of us as people, what is the relationship between the two? Let's consider that this morning. Would you stand as you're able for the reading of God's holy word? We stand, of course, out of reverence for God's scriptures. As we do so, we exalt the name of Jesus Christ with our attention, and we acknowledge the authority before which we bow as his word and the ultimate standard of truth is proclaimed. Psalm 116, verse 1, listen now to the word of God. I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because He inclined His ear to me, therefore I will call on Him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. O Lord, I am Your servant. I am Your servant, the son of Your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to You the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The 10th leper's song. Psalm 116 is the fourth of the Halal set, Halal meaning praise. These were songs, to remind you, specifically chosen, six of them, for worship. At the feasts of Passover, particular those occasions where the celebration of deliverance out of Egypt was the uh, purpose for the celebration, purpose for the worship. The Lord's deliverance of His people in Egypt uh, under Moses from the bonds of Pharaoh was a worthy occasion for Psalm 116 and many others. This particular hymn expresses worship for personal deliverance, reminding us that salvation in the kingdom of God has both a corporate group and individual personal implication. God saves a nation. God is saving a priesthood. These are references from 1 Peter and other references in the New Testament. God is saving a church. God is saving Zion, Old Testament. God is saving a multitude. God is saving His bride. God is saving a people. But He's doing so one heart at a time. How ought the heart of the delivered respond to the Lord upon his salvation? Psalm 116 answers. He, that is the delivered heart, ought to join the throngs of the redeemed in offering his vows of praise. His praise and performing his vows in the throngs among God's people and the collection of those who have joined in his experience, share his identity, are now among the same nation, family, and people group. He ought to join the throngs of the redeemed in offering His praise and performing His vows. Thus, the second title I considered for Psalm 116 is Grace and Vows. The entire framework of this song serves to clarify the relationship between God's grace and our obedience. Which comes first? Which do you guys think? Which comes first in the gospel? Our obedience, to which God responds with His grace. Or does God's grace come first, to which we respond with our obedience? Which comes first, grace or obedience? Grace is correct. That is the message of salvation by grace through faith alone that is not unique to one of Paul's arguments It's across the pages of Scripture, thoroughly woven through every phrase, every stanza, every chorus, every refrain of Psalm 116, the relationship between grace and vows. The entire framework of this song serves to clarify those two, which comes uh, to the author, or and this, these truths, time and again, the grace of God and His deliverance precedes, enables, and inspires the praise of the author and the sincere singer of Psalm 116. Again, the grace of God, God's delivering grace, that unmerited favor, that act of sovereign intervention, that miraculous salvation, God's delivering grace precedes, goes before, it enables, gives us strength, inspires, us to praise the author, or to praise, or it inspires the praise of the author and the sincere singer of Psalm 116. Let me give you one more title, as if two isn't enough, Possibilities for Psalm 116. A third possible title historically may have been Postpartum Praise. A little curveball there, Postpartum Praise. Postpartum means after birth. I found in my study, and this is interesting, it's a good application, I suggest, Churches through the ages have found Psalm 116 to provide the liturgy of thanksgiving that is appropriate after a mother has given birth in their congregation. And if you think about that, moms, parents of kids, it does make sense. There is reason to praise the Lord having been delivered through the affliction and pain and difficulty, trial and challenge of childbirth, and a psalm like this is fitting for that occasion. Now, I hasten to add if we would adopted this practice as a church, we probably should have. We would have had this song memorized a long time ago, right? The content of the praises and occasion of a birth is one of those instances that lends itself to glorifying God for answered prayer. And Psalm 116 is just a great soundtrack for that. It's great in its themes uh, to correspond with God delivering us through a hardship. In the end, I chose the title, from a moment in the gospels where praise is offered to our Lord upon the deliverance of a horrible affliction. Hence the title, the 10th Leper's song. Sadly, this heart of worship was demonstrated by just one of those who were healed that day. And I cannot think of a better song for him to sing as he returned to praise his savior, his healer and Lord than our text today. And just to get that context and that example application, turn with me to Luke. 17. As we read just a few verses that give the story of the 10th leper who is healed, imagine Psalm 116 on his lips as he returns. Again, we're in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, and listen as, verses, as we hear verses 11 through 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along, that's Jesus, between Samaria and Galilee, And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Verse 14, second half again. As they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, "Were not ten cleansed, where are the nine? No one, was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way, your faith has made you well. Turning back to Psalm 116, imagine as he returns words like this on the lips of one like him. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish, and I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul, and so on. So that's the leper. He can certainly relate to Psalm 116. Can you? Were you afflicted with a malady of the soul, such that the snares of hell and the grave itself threatened to catch you and pull you in, to destroy you? yes. A greater leprosy than the degradation of the human flesh is the degradation of our souls, that leprous condition from which we must have the sovereign touch of God to be healed. Indeed, our transgressions and sins, which are worthy of the jaws of hell, the only way to be delivered from them is the healing touch of the master, grace alone. And when he says, be healed, our hearts are risen again from the death of our transgressions. How will we respond? Will we be like most who take for granted the grace of God and do not return? Or will we follow the example of this outcast, this unlikely one, this foreigner, this simple man, this one of little account, this Samaritan who takes with him, perhaps Psalm 116, if not certainly the heart of that worship song, back to the Lord and praises him at his feet? Which of the 10? had a more fulfilling experience of deliverance. Was it the nine who were healed to go about what they wanted to do already in the flesh anyway, or was it the one who not only his physical body, but his heart was transformed by the touch of the Messiah? This is the vision of Psalm 116, and I believe it's a good application to consider, and it certainly relates to our own experience. Let me give you four elements of Exodus worship. Four elements of deliverance worship, if you will. Number one, Arrested affections, verse 1 and 2. God grips our heart. The things that we used to feel suddenly change. You think of uh, being arrested, you know, uh, sneaking up on you all of a sudden against your otherwise ordinary will, an event, an experience happens to you. It's an arresting thing, catches you off guard perhaps. You have to comply. Our affections, our desires are changed in the instance of salvation, arrested affections. The grace of God reaches out, grabs us, compels us. And it's a paradox because it's sort of like a a, a turning and a resurrection and an act only independent of ourselves, yet it changes our will to love and desire and to set our affections upon the Lord. Uh, Four elements I told you. Number one, arrested affections. Number two, assurance of salvation verses 3 through 7, number 3, inspired vows, verses 8 through 14, and number 4, fitting occasions, 15 through 19. So that's our four elements of Exodus worship. First of all, again, arrested affections. The psalm is introduced, and I love this phrase, chiastic reprise. Don't you love that? something I'd come up with likely in my study, right? So what is chiasm? Just a reminder, it's symmetry of ideas. It's the way the first two verses are arranged. that's kind of a beautiful symmetry to it. I love the Lord's, so that's affection's response. Because he had heard, has heard, it's the reason, my voice. So I love the Lord, that's my response. Because he has heard my voice, that's the reason. And my pleas for mercy, another reason. Because he inclined his ear to me, excuse me, another reason. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live, response. So response, reason, reason, response. You see that kind of symmetry there? I love the Lord because he has heard. That's the vow. That's the commitment. That's the worship. But why does he do so? He has heard my voice because, I love the Lord, because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. That's the reason. Here's a further reason, kind of restating it in a parallel way. Because he inclined his ear to me, and then therefore, here's his vow, I will call on him as long as I live. So you get it? Vow, grace, grace, vow. And in a chiastic structure, what matters, the central idea is at the center. So the way these first two verses are ordered is to show the grace of God is at the center of the redeemed life. Arrested affections. The grace of God compel us to change. They change our deepest loves and our strongest commitments. I love the Lord because He has heard me. I have no other response really but to throw myself at his mercy and to give him all my life, to serve him with my all. Is this a New Testament concept? You better believe it. Just a couple citations to dovetail what the author so beautifully portrays. The first that came to mind is in Romans chapter 5, where Paul states in the context of the gospel, very specifically, the same thing that is exalted, the same truth that is exalted in Psalm or portrayed in the experience of the author, and again, in every sincere singer of Psalm 116. So this is Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still lepers, right? Jesus Christ died for us in the leprosy of sin. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we hated Him, Christ loved us. First John goes on with another citation, 1 John 4, 19, that very famous text. We love Him because He first loved us. That is correct. Do you see in the gospel, because Christ, loving the unlovely, taking on human flesh, dying for those unworthy of his presence and his word, and certainly his action, his saving work on Calvary, in fact, those worthy of death and hell itself, and Christ intervening and dying on our behalf for those who did not love him as of yet, who were as of yet his enemies, who were dead in their transgressions and sins, depraved of heart and nature. We are compelled. We love the Lord. What else can we do but respond this way because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because He has inclined His ear to me, therefore I will call on Him as long as I live. Now, those two verses are basically a reprise. They're like a summary of the whole song. It's just beautiful. My affections, my desires, my heart has been changed because God has arrested me with His loving kindness, His covenant-keeping love and power, His redeeming, delivering work. He ransomed me out of the bondage of my sin the same way He ransomed His people out of the bondage of Egypt. You think of it in kind of a whereas and be resolved statement. This whole psalm is basically ordered by reason and then commitment, or whereas the Lord has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, therefore, or be it resolved, I love the Lord. Whereas He has inclined His ear to me, Therefore, be it resolved, I will call on him as long as I live. I remember coming up with kind of one of those uh, resolution statements. You know, if you have like a formal covenant type document, say in a political party, it's common to structure the document that way. You have a sufficient reason, and then you have a parallel commitment. Whereas X, therefore, or be it resolved Y. And through the entire course of this psalm, that's the way it's structured. There is grace and vow. Grace is the reason, vow is the commitment. Grace is the whereas, um, vow is the be it resolved. And that's the way the Christian life is ordered when it is properly understanding the amazing miracle of our own salvation. Now, one of my favorite scenes from a movie is in Les Miserables, but I have to be careful to distinguish. It's not in the dumb one where Russell Crowe tries to sing, it's in the other one. So there's this scene where Jean Valjean, he's the protagonist, right, the main character. And remember, he had been in prison for, I can't remember, 20 years-ish or something, for the crime of stealing a morsel of bread. In this prison situation, he becomes hard, hard of heart, and when he is released, he's bitter, and he is angry, and he has little to care for or about besides himself. He comes in his escape, or in finally leaving the bonds of prison behind, he comes upon a priest, and seeks refuge in his house. Taking the occasion of some valuables in the home, he stashes away two candlesticks, as I recall, in his belongings, promptly leaves early before the family rises the next morning. The family, upon realizing the candlesticks are missing, decides to have grace, and they do not pursue him. Eventually, the law, however, catches up with the man. And they're no dummies. The prefect, the police at the time, they realize, ah, oh, this man has the mark of a thief all over him. So there he is in handcuffs brought back to the priest's house, and justice will be served. What does the priest say? Thank you for returning these candlesticks, and I hope that you prosecute this man to the fullest extent of the law. No, nope. The priest says, I gave him those candlesticks. Those are him, his. Uh, Return to him his rightful property and send him on his way. And then the authorities leave, as I recall, and the priest says one more thing to Jean Valjean. He says this, With these candlesticks, I have purchased your soul. So, that is the act of grace. And it changes Jean Valjean's life. He makes a vow. Which comes first, vow or grace? Grace comes first. With these candlesticks, I have purchased your soul. And that is exactly what happens. His heart is changed. No longer bitter and resentful. Realizing that he has given something he doesn't deserve. And against the very thing that, you know, instead of justice, he was granted mercy in this case. And so he vows to live his life. He resolves, whereas I was given these candlesticks I actually stole. Be it resolved, I will live my life to model grace and seek to be a good example of godliness in the rest of my affairs. And God uses him you know, in the course of the story, to be influential in a number of ways. There's a contrast to him in the prefect, the law, the guy who represents the law. And for him, law is first, and grace is a non-factor. He doesn't understand the concept. Eventually, it kills him. Pretty powerful picture. But it illustrates the arresting of the affections, does it not? I love the Lord because he has heard me, my voice and my pleas for mercy. Jesus Christ died for you while you were still a sinner, and at the cost of the cross, he purchased your soul. Whereas you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, be it resolved, you will serve him with all your heart, and with all your life, because at the cost of the most precious thing in all the universe, the shed blood of the only man who didn't deserve it, he bought you. You are his. You are purchased with a price. And so when we see the challenging in context, when we hear the challenging call of the Christian gospel, suddenly that high bar of faithfulness and taking up our cross It's manageable, is it not? Why? Why is it manageable? We focus upon the cost that purchased our soul. And now taking up our cross and following him is a small price to pay. It's no price at all. It's our dutiful act of worship. It's that which our arrested affections long to do. This is the theme of grace and vow throughout the Christian life, celebrated in this text, expounded through Scripture, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Second major theme. Four elements of Exodus worship. Number one, arrested affections. Number two, assurance of salvation. Verses three through seven continue. The snares of death encompass me, the pangs of a Sheol, which means the place of the dead, the inevitable end of those who are, who are under the curse of the fallenness of sin, its natural tendencies and indeed even its spiritual realities, hell itself if there is no repentance. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Verse 5, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. Three characteristics, attributes, if you will, of our Lord. Grace, righteousness, and mercy. All three fulfilled sufficiently, available in tandem one with one another only because of the cross. The Lord preserves the simple, verse 6. That is to say, He preserves the Samaritan, the one who returns and prays. He preserves the outcast, the distant Gentile, 2,000 years removed from the original preaching of the gospel, you and me. When I was brought low, He saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. The rest, the assurance of salvation. In other words, Framed like this, whereas the snares of death encompassed me, I deserved hell, God heard my prayer and and rescued me, be it resolved, my rest, my assurance, my confidence is in Him. Imagine a field of open graves. Imagine a whole journey in life of open graves. And at the foot of each grave is a snare, a trap, you know, just imagine like a lasso type loop and a rope you know, that stretches down into that pre-dug grave. This is a picture the psalmist paints for us. You're walking along, and in your unrepentant ways, by just the mere grace of God to keep you alive, you nevertheless are navigating a minefield of death around every corner. And it's just a matter of time. It's inevitable. You will one day step where you shouldn't, and that snare will imagine a trigger uh, return assembly. So... Once you step into that trap, immediately snaps around your ankle and triggers that recoil assembly and drags you right into the grave. You can picture that, can't you? This is the snares of death that encompass us, the pangs of Sheol that laid a hold of us. This is the minefield of sin's deserving consequences that every unbeliever negotiates and navigates. And there's only one way to escape that certain eventuality and that reality. It's grace alone. To cry out to the Lord, His changing of your heart, Him hearing your pleas for mercy and answering you in your distress. When you call upon His name and then you experience His deliverance. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. And somehow again, through the cross alone, God has proven gracious, righteous, and merciful in taking that snare on your behalf. The Lord preserves the simple. Now we see in this assurance of salvation... The because and whereas statements, can't we? uh, Because or therefore, because God saved me from certain death, therefore my soul rests in Him. Whereas I was negotiating the dangers of this unrepentant life, death uh, welcoming me at every corner, be it resolved after the Lord has saved me, that my assurance is in Him. It's just something amazing to note in this phrase as well, that He preserves the simple. You know, there there are extensive nuclear fallout protocols, I am told, for a nation such as ours. Let's say a nuclear weapon was headed for America and it was detected. It would trigger a a bunch of different policies among the government. Camp David, I'm told, is a nuclear-protected facility. There's presumably deep underground bunkers. So those who are most important to the governing and continuance of our political social order, ostensibly, can have a place to escape nuclear fallout. In other words, we prioritize the president, the cabinet, you know, the heads of state, the State Department, the policymakers. There needs to be a war room insulated from nuclear fallout if America is to survive this worst case scenario, right? So, who will be in Camp David in the event of a possible nuclear attack? Will you or I be there? Nope. There's not going to be an armored car that comes and takes us to a bunker to shield us from a nuclear attack. Why? Because we're not that important. We're just simple. We're people, you know, among 300 plus million that just happen to reside in this huge, overwhelming body politic America as we know it today. We're just citizens. We're just taxpayers. Perhaps, you know, in the view of some misguided politicians, just tax cattle. We're not important. There's no triage plan to shield us from a nuclear blast. And in a sense, it's logical, isn't it? Wouldn't you privilege those who had the most power and ability, you know, ostensibly to continue the civilization in the event of a total collapse? Well, there's something different about the gospel. And time and again in the scriptures, it's proclaimed in these glorious, mysterious terms that God debases the proud and important and exalts the lowly and the simple. And when you realize that God saves you, though you didn't deserve it, you're simple, lowly Samaritan, you know, a, different, a person who is an outcast, out of place, and really of no merit in and of yourself to receive the benefits of salvation, how much greater does grace appear to you? That God has saved you, a simple, undeserving sinner. He has not gone out leaving the 99 behind to choose that one, you know, emperor and save him so that he might change, you know, the entire course of the universe. So God certainly can and has done that in the past. No. God saw fit, as it were, in the parable to leave the 99 behind and to pursue you, a simple individual, not rating very high on the scale of social importance in our society. And and what ought that compel us to do? Whereas I was simple, not very important, And likely my influence won't reach that far unless God has grace to do something spectacular, you know, against the odds. The reach of my importance may not exceed very far my immediate circle of family, friends, and so on and so forth. Nevertheless, whereas he has sought fit to save me, be it resolved, whatever he wants me to do, the answer is already yes. I will serve my Lord because he saw fit to save me, a simple one. Assurance of Salvation is this element of worship. It's a resolved statement to have a quietude of heart that God has saved me, therefore my soul can rest. There's just a beautiful order in this psalm. Assurance of salvation is fundamental to obedience, and so it is laid out accordingly in our text. Four elements of Exodus worship, arrested affections, assurance of salvation, number three, inspired vows. This answers the how then should we live question, if you will. Verses eight through 14 continue in this way. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. There's our whereas statement. There's our because statement. Because God has delivered me, my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, now we have a pretty long, be it resolved statement. Verse 9, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord and the presence of all His people. So you see again, do you not, the relationship between grace and obedience. Whereas God has delivered me, be it resolved, I will walk, I will speak, I will lift up, I will call on Him, and I will pay my vows. At least five vow commitments. This is a votive psalm, which is the adjective form of vow, It's a psalm expressing worthy commitment to the Lord who at the cost of his son's blood purchased your soul. Back to that Jean Valjean picture with these candlesticks, I've purchased your soul. And so he goes on to serve a greater ideal than he had once known before in the bitter selfishness of oppression. And so we, upon the change that God has worked in our hearts delivering our souls from deserving death and our eyes from tears, that is, the despair of death that awaits everyone who does not repent and believe, we are delivered from that. We're talking about, Aunt Sue and I this morning, about funerals and how heavy they are versus how glorious they are depending on the orientation of the soul of the one who's died and those that grieve. The Scriptures say that we are not like those who grieve without any hope. There's another documentary we watched uh, years ago. Every once in a while we return to it because it's so gospel-rich, called Itau, which means amen, in the language of an indigenous folks. And they dramatized a funeral in the course of that documentary before Christ, the gospel came to their village, and after the village had committed their lives to Christ. And before, you never saw such despair, an absolute weeping, an emptying of oneself, a crying out in unmitigated anguish at the top of their lungs. Now, you may not see that in America all that often. You know why? Because we're dumb. We are blind. We are under the influence of uh, pathogens of the soul, of the body, and otherwise that prevent us from the honesty of realizing the despair of facing death without the assurance of the afterlife. There is more truth. There is more clarity, more sober-mindedness among the pagans of a people who cry out in anguish at a funeral, knowing the truth, that barring the assurance of life beyond the grave, they are to be the most pitied, and there is no hope for the despair. It's not like us anymore, nor that village, because they gave their hearts to Christ after Jesus has come. How can how much more can they, or how can they appreciate? How much more can they appreciate with that frame of mind, this tribe? The message of Psalm 116, you've delivered my soul from death and my eyes from tears, having allowed themselves to realize the despair of dying without a Savior, and then the rush of God's grace, rescuing them from the snares of death, delivering their souls from the pangs of Sheol. This is the whereas, delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling. And because of this, be it resolved. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living, not the walking dead that don't even realize that they are under a judgment and curse and might as well be in the grave already barring repentance. No, we walk before the Lord in the land of the living. We now have fellowship, communion, association with those who are new creations, who have been born again, new creatures in Christ Jesus. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. Voices to the contrary are foolish reprobate, messages of self-deception. Verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Waken me from the stupor of uh, self-deluded idolatry? What does he say? Be it resolved. Verse 13, so many words. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord and the presence of all His people. This language of cup, you might remember it in other passages of Scripture. It most often refers to the wrath of God. The wrath of God in the form of a cup, in that picture, was poured out upon Jesus Christ. And you can see the anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane as He drinks that cup. As He cries out to the Lord, of this, the God-man, greater ability resolved to endure the will of God than anyone will ever know and says, if it be your will, may this cup pass from me. Illustrating to you how heavy, how weighty, how much anguish the cup of the wrath of God contained when it was poured out upon our Lord and Savior. Nevertheless, saints, on your behalf, he swallowed it whole. He swallowed it whole. The cup of the wrath of God. And get the picture, something like this. We preach the gospel that Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God for us. This cup that we see in Psalm 116 parallels the cup of wrath often pictured in the Bible. Psalm 75 verse 8 and the garden garden experience that we just referenced. Jesus swallows the cup of God's wrath for us. And imagine, He fills that cup with the graces of salvation. He serves us at His table. This was pictured last week at the Lord's table. And then He offers it back to us, full of grace. What will you do with that cup? Psalm 116 answers, The cup of God's graces that He has granted to me by way of salvation, I lift up to Him as the only worthy offering in thankfulness. Whereas he drank the cup of God's wrath on my behalf and handed it back to me full of gospel graces, be it resolved, I will offer it back to him in worship. When I was little, I've used this picture before but I can't resist the illustration. My dad is here and I remember when I was little visiting a church and as a complete dependent at the time I had no money to place in the offering. So my dad would give me a bit of money, say a dollar, and the offering plate would be passed. And then I had placed that dollar in the offering plate. Was this a legitimate offering? Yes. You see, I had nothing to boast of or to offer in and of myself except that which the Father gave. It's a picture of the gospel. We have nothing to boast of or to offer to the Lord by worthy worship and service except that which He already gives. And this is why the picture of grace preceding vows so powerfully illustrated here. The uh, oblation, which means, you know, the offering that the priest, the worthy sacrifice the priest offers. We as a kingdom of priests, the oblation that we have to offer the Lord is the grace, that which he gives us, that which he has enabled through the gift of salvation and his continued work in us. This, is the inspire, this reality inspires vows. Have you ever wondered how in the world could someone leave their house and kindred and go and be a, a missionary to Malawi. Fred and Sidney are on the phone with them. You know, what gives the inspiring call for them to drop everything, go to among the poorest nations in the world, their families spread out across you know, this place in the United States and that place in the Philippines right now. They have to raise support. They have to humble themselves. They have to call on the phone. They have to go and risk malaria. Their son has already had a life-threatening bout with it and go right back to Malawi. What would inspire this kind of dedication? Well, when you realize what Christ has done, whereas He has delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling, be it resolved. If He calls me to the mission field, I will go. The cup of wrath that Jesus drank for me, if it's filled with a calling to be a missionary, a calling to go forth and to proclaim the Lord's truth, I offer it back to Him. I take up my cross and follow Him. He's arrested my affections. What else can I do? With His cross, He's purchased my soul. Final point this morning. Again, four elements of Exodus worship. Arrested affections, assurance of salvation, inspired vows, and finally this morning, verses 15 through 19, fitting occasions. Where ought this praise be offered? Verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant, I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. And the courts of the house of the Lord in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. The first two verses are the whereas statement, if you will. And the following three are the be it resolved. Because precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, In other words, because God values the course of my own life, such as to intervene before death swallowed me up into the just deserts of my sin, because God intervened and saved me from ultimate death, and more so because God has such care and concern that He preserves, in many cases, His servants against all odds in a a very dangerous world, and that He has invested in His people, even every creature, human being that He has made a degree of himself insofar as they are made in his image, whereas all of this is true, that the death of his saints is precious in his sight, be it resolved, I will offer to him the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Whereas the Lord, whereas the Lord is my master, and I am his servant, and as such he has loosed my bonds. You, know, you go back to that picture in the movie Les Miserables, jean Valjean. He became the master of the message or the vision, if you will, the charge and, and the challenge that the priest gave him. And he served basically the purposes of that gift for the rest of his life. Now, you could look at that and say, ah, I don't submit to anyone. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I, I think true liberty and true freedom, true meaning and significance in life is to be absolutely disconnected from any sovereign over me. Well, impossible impossible. You are no more in charge of your life, ultimately speaking, than you were over the day that you were born, the moment you were conceived. We are contingent, which means we're created beings dependent on other things outside ourselves. Therefore, the truth is this. You are a slave. You are a master to someone, like the old Bob Dylan song, everybody's got to serve somebody. And then in that rhetorical flourish of brilliance, he says, It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. That is a true statement. I don't know where Bob Dylan's at today, but in so far as that song goes, he got it right. Bob Dylan and anyone else at any given time is either serving the devil or is serving the Lord. There is no other option for a contingent, finite, dependent creature. And so the psalmist's allegiance has changed. Where he once was a slave to sin or the idolatry of the culture or the pressures of the hour... Or, you know, the public opinion, the majority report of the nation in which he lived and its wicked neighbors and so forth, no longer. I am your servant, he says, to the Lord, to Yahweh Almighty, the son of your maidservant, so to speak, you have loosed my bonds. I was once enslaved in Egypt, but the Lord loosed the bonds of the Egyptians through his delivering prophet servant Moses, who served in some ways as a picture and type of Christ and a priest, unto... A new service and dedication to Jesus Christ as it were, king of that body politic. That's what happened. And so it happened in the gospel where we were once slaves to sin and we were controlled in our thoughts and our intents and our actions and our ultimate motivations in our vows, in our duty, in our pursuits, in our desires, we were arrested. Our affections were arrested. And with them came a change in slave ownership. Where we were once slaves to sin, our bonds were loosed and now I am your servant, O Lord. I am a slave to you, dear Jesus Christ. Whereas this is true, be it resolved. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Those last three verses, the be it resolved statement, the therefore statement, it pictures the glorious communion of all the saints gathered. The psalmist can relate to this little gathering here today. If you woke up in the Spirit, at least to some degree, with a little joy and a quickened step because you were going to gather with saints and praise the Lord, your Savior, your Master, your Messiah, together with those who have shared your experience, being purchased, your soul being purchased, at the cost of His blood, you know something of what the author of Psalm 116 is saying, when he declares, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving, where? In the presence of all his people, and the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. We live in a culture obsessed with community, obsessed with identity. Identity politics rules the day in many cases, in many of these narrative frameworks and message boards and whatever propaganda outlets that we have in our society today. Everything is defined by your affiliations, by your ethnic identity, by your people group, by your experience, by your lived experience, by your truth, quote, unquote. We're obsessed with the notion of identity and community. In some cases, they they tell us, oh, you're a slave to it. You'll always be X because you were born Y. You'll always be Y because you were born X, and so on and so forth. If you change, it's only provisional, this, that, and the other. All of it is hogwash, hogwash. Why? Because it doesn't take into account the guiding ultimate principles of the Word of God, who alone God and His authority as our Creator and the ordainer, sustainer, designer, maintainer of the entire universe can define you and knows exactly the truth. And He has declared as much when He says in 1 Peter 2 that you, saints gathered in this room, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're not some beneficiary of white privilege that serves as the oppressor among a people who are inevitable victims because of the way that our nation was organized and history uh, laid itself out over the course of time. And now, salvation for you is being conscious of that and becoming an ally to whatever the political whims of a socialist Marxist order demand of you right now. Our That's all confusing, hogwash, sinful, ridiculous absurdities. No. We like everyone born in sin, was once not a chosen race, was once not fitted for the priesthood and worship of a mighty God. We were once foreigners, outcasts, Gentiles, rebels, enemies of God. That's who we were. There's only two kinds of people, ultimately speaking, the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman. From Genesis 3 to today, that remains the truth. We are a people nevertheless in Christ and Christ alone for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, now you have received mercy. This right here, this is the fundamental organizing principle of true community. Being saved by Jesus Christ, a slave to Him, transcends every other, you know, whatever. Whatever. Misplaced identity, failure or uh, fault of your own, or incidental birth situation, ethnic background, cultural tension, etc., etc. It doesn't matter. There is a new organizing principle. You once were a sinner, you're now saved by grace. And let me tell you what I don't care what your background is. You could be the thief on the cross saved in the last hour. You have as much identity and community in the last few minutes where that reprobate now saved. I should say, one-time sinner, now saved. That saint, in those last few moments, breathes his last. You have as, as much unity with him as you do as maybe someone raised in a Christian home that doesn't have that, quote-unquote, dramatic salvation experience, as you do with someone like that. Why? Because of the truth of what the gospel says. And when you realize it, that whereas, be it resolved situation, becomes so much more clear. And suddenly, the place where you want to be, And where you find your identity is in Christ. And the strongest family bond is with the family of God. And the hope for salvation, endurance, protection, provision is in God your Father, who can give you your daily bread and has died to give you the bread of life. And suddenly you don't look for a utopian reconstruction of everything according to a humanistic world order. No, you look to a new heavens and new earth that God will usher in in His perfect time according to His will that is ruled and reigned by one Lord, one Savior, one King of kings, Jesus Christ, and there is no other. This is the truth. And this is what Psalm 116 echoes when it says, I will offer to you sacrifice of thanksgiving, call upon your name, I will pay my vows, where? In the presence of all his people, the redeemed elect, the new nation, the holy priesthood, those blood-bought, called out, established, and unified across every tribe, tongue, and nation by the power of Jesus Christ. In the courts of the house of the Lord in the midst of Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. And these are pictures symbolically of what is fulfilled in the Gospel. Last week, we closed 1 Peter with reference to an interesting verse. But I trust in the context of Psalm 116 that it might make more sense now. Do you remember this? Among the greetings, the apostle offers the church. Among them, they came from Silvanus, Silas, came from she who is in Babylon, likely the church in Rome. Mark is included, my son, Peter refers to him. And then verse 14, last verse, verse Peter 5, 14. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Greet one another with a kiss of love. That's something that families do. Well, guess what? We're a family. Greet one another with this, you know, close expression of affection. Well, that's something that people who, you know, have the same ethnic background do. Guess what? You're a new nation in Jesus Christ. Greet one another with this, you know, gesture of love and joy and affection. That's something that, you know, people do if they've been granted a great gift and rescued by someone who, you know, they didn't deserve it. guess what? At the cost of Christ's own blood, you have been called out by Him to be His people, chosen for His possession, a prized and purchased people to the praise of His great name. Thus, when we gather in this place, it is a fitting occasion for your uh, be it resolved statements. No greater joy, no greater vision Then I gathered as a people, we offer our praise in union in communion and shared experience to the praise of Jesus Christ for saving us from all kinds of sin, from all kinds of backgrounds, to the praise of his great name. Next week, we'll have an emissary here, the close of the service, who will give us a report from Ethiopia. And what you are going to hear is a message from our brother serving overseas, whom I've never personally met before, Evan and Jenna have who loves the Lord like you and I, who we have sweet fellowship with even across the distance. And what is the bridge that connects us to this nation on the other side of the globe with different people and a different socioeconomic class, different language, etc.? You know, you can multiply all these distinctions. The world, ah, you can't transcend any of those. Oh, yeah? Watch me, Jesus Christ says. And he unifies the church across the globe by the blood of his precious son to create a family from every nation, tribe, and tongue. We're about to get a report next week on that very thing happening even in our midst. So when we fellowship, even via technology, and reports from the mission field, we're doing so in the spirit of Psalm 116. We're resolved to come along and to support and to offer what we can as the Lord calls us to serve His purposes globally. And where are we called to do it? We're called to do it in the courts of the house of the Lord, which includes outposts in nations in far corners of this earth. We're called to do it in the name of Jesus Christ, who has made this very thing possible. Because we are the new Jerusalem, that is, his people set apart and called to the praise of his great name to shine forth in a peculiar way the message of hope in Jesus Christ. This is who we are. We are the tenth leper. If we take Psalm 116 seriously and we use it as fitting worship to offer to our Lord in praise, we we'll recognize the whereas statements and make a new resolve each day as the Spirit grants us grace to live in light. The worship and obedience worthy of the call. Let us close in prayer that we would do so. Father, I thank you for the message of hope in Jesus Christ. I thank you that this message is woven through the pages of your Holy Scripture in such glorious and even in our text poetic, beautiful ways. Lord, as we read this, we think, wow, I wonder what the original music sounded like. I wonder what language, Lord, it was offered in. I wonder how many times it was translated through the ages. Nevertheless, we hear it by your grace and providence in our own ears, the language we speak today, because you've seen fit to transcend all of time and history and other things that would separate us to draw us to Jesus Christ through the proclamation of his word to repent and to believe. This goes for every believer in the hearing of these words today. For those who are yet lost, we pray, Lord, that the message of repent and allegiance to Jesus Christ as King of Kings would ring, ring true and that they would know the pain and the anguish and the snares of death encompassing them and the uh, anguish of Sheol upon them unless and until they repent and believe. Lord, though they suffer distress and anguish, if they but call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. I pray they would soon join us and say, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. Grant us grace to call on you this week, O God, and may we hear your call gathering your saints once again next week and as many times as you ordain in between and as many days as you tarry unto the coming of the consummate kingdom of God in our midst and for all time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.